The following presentation was recorded at SEPCON 97, the third annual conference for the separation of school and state alliance in Fresno, California. It is copyrighted by the Alliance 1997, but you are welcome to make copies as gifts for your friends. Fritz, and I'm with the separation of school and state alliance, and it is indeed my pleasure to be your master of ceremonies this morning. Introducing our speaker and uh, his responders, is none other than Norma Gabler, the textbook lady from Texas. Will you please welcome Norma, please. Thank you, Marshall. It's, it's a, a real honor to me to be asked to introduce a man that I've known for many, many years. And we go back a long way. I guess I shouldn't say that, except I'm probably older than he is. and. Uh, my husband and I have been reviewing textbooks now for, will soon be 37 years. We don't give up very easily. Uh, my husband and I have been married, Mel and I have been married 55 years. And of that, 37 of those have been spent attempting to save uh, education. And uh, we've done a fair job, but there's still a lot to do. But Mel and I are a team, and it's so nice to be here this morning. What an honor to to introduce Howard Phillips. Uh, in 1996, the National uh, Convention of the U.S. Taxpayers Party chose Howard Phillips to be its presidential candidate. Phillips left the Republican Party in 1974 after a distinguished career ranging from precinct worker to assistant to the chairman of the Republican National Committee. He headed two federal agencies and served in the Nixon administration. In 1974, Mr. Phillips has been chairman of the Conservative Caucus, an effective, nonpartisan, nationwide grassroots public policy advocacy group. He has also authored three books, The New Ride at Harvard, Moscow's Challenge to U.S. Vital Interest, and the Sub-Saharan Africa. That's got a long name, Howard. And the next four years, Phillips and his wife Peggy and their immediate family reside in Fairfax County. It's nice to have you this morning. Uh, I'm also now going to introduce the respondents, and this will be in the order in which they will respond. It's George Doug Lawrence, Jr. For the past 20 years, George has served as the headmaster of the Philadelphia Montgomery Christian Academy in Pennsylvania. He believes that one of the most important jobs he has is to identify, to hire, and to nurture persons who have a gift of teaching artists and education, as he aptly describes them. Uh, for the past, the last six years, Mr. Lawrence has been a, been a president of the Evangelical Christian School in Memphis, where he and his wife of 32 years live. He forgot to give me his wife's name. I'm sorry about that. I think that's really important. Janet. I just think I just think you ought to always include the rest of your family. Uh, the next is uh, Dean Armand, and um, he is uh, asked me if I would show you the new, the newest book that he has. It's called Islam and the Discovery of Freedom, and I thought that might be of interest to you. He's having graduated cum laude from Harvard in 1970. He obtained a, a PhD in astronomy and a astrophysics from the University of Arizona. 
He presently teaches at two different universities and the International Islamic Weekend School. Next is Ron Brandt. Uh, Ron, now an education writer and consultant, is former editor of Educational Leadership and other publications of the Association for Supervision and Curriculum Development. In addition to working in the education community, Mr. Brandt has been a staff member of a regional education laboratory in the upper Midwest, and in 1960s he taught at a teacher training college in Nigeria, West Africa. He is the author or co-author of numerous publications, and I won't try to read all of those that he has. In 1996, he was one of the first persons inducted into the EduPress Hall of Fame uh, for his contributions to education and publishing. Good luck, guys. We're looking forward to hearing you. Good morning, everyone. Congratulations to Marshall Fritz for putting together this superb conference. Congratulations to you for being here, and great thanks to Norma Gabler, who with her husband Mel has been out front in the battle for parental control of education long before most Americans even knew there was a battle. 19th century theologian R.L. Dabney got it right when he observed regarding conservatives that, quote, this is a party which never conserves anything. Its history has been that it demurs to each aggression of the progressive party and aims to save its credit by a respectable amount of growling, but always acquiesces at last in the innovation. What was the resisted novelty of yesterday is today one of the accepted principles of conservatism. It is now conservative only in affecting to resist the next innovation, which will tomorrow be forced upon its timidity and will be succeeded by some third revolution to be denounced and then adopted in its turn. American conservatism, said Dabney, is merely the shadow that follows radicalism as it moves forward toward perdition. It remains behind it, but never retards it, and always advances near its leader. This pretended salt has utterly lost its savor. Wherewith shall it be salted? Its impotency is not hard, indeed, to explain. It is worthless because it is the conservatism of expediency only, and not of sturdy principle. It intends to risk nothing serious for the sake of the truth and has no idea of being guilty of the folly of martyrdom. It always, when about to enter a protest, very blandly informs the wild beast whose path it essays to stop that its bark is worse than its bite and that it only means to save its manners by enacting its decent role of resistance. The only practical purpose which it now serves in American politics is to give enough exercise to radicalism to keep it in wind and to prevent it be, its becoming pursy and lazy from having nothing to whip. All too true. Professor Dabney's comments certainly remain applicable and relevant today. When President Jimmy Carter proposed creation of the Federal Department of Education, in the 1970s, much Republican rhetorical bombast ensued. 
Indeed, Ronald Reagan made the very existence of the Department of Education an issue in his 1980 presidential campaign. The Republican platform that year said, quote, next to religious training and the home, education is the most important means by which families hand down to each new generation their ideals and beliefs. It is a pillar of a free society, but today parents are losing control of their children's schooling. The Republican Party said that 1980 platform supports deregulation by the federal government of public education and encourages the elimination of the Federal Department of Education. However, during the Reagan years, funding for the Department of Education increased from $14.6 billion per year in 1980 to an annual $21.5 billion appropriation at the end of Mr. Reagan's tenure on January 20, 1989. Mr. Reagan signed that appropriation. Under George Bush, federal funding for education increased to $25.8 billion. By 1995, when Republicans gained control of both houses of Congress in the 1994 midterm elections, total federal outlays on education, according to a study prepared by Jim Jacobson and Mike Hammond for the National Center for Home Education, amounted to more than $70 billion for a single year. They pointed out that the U.S. Department of Education's budget accounts for only $33 billion of the estimated $70 billion in federal education assistance. The department administers 244 education programs, while 30 other federal agencies administer 308 more such programs. Since then, the Republican Congress has given Bill Clinton even more than he has asked for, appropriating additional billions of dollars for federal education spending, appropriations which include all the money Mr. Clinton needs for the very programs which the Republicans decry, including Goals 2000, School to Work, and Outcome-Based Education. Now, the latest line of Republican retreat is with respect to federal education testing. Predictably and appropriately, national school testing is opposed rhetorically by Republicans and conservatives. Predictably and inappropriately, compromise has already been struck on this issue. As reported in the Washington Post of November 12, last year, this is a quote, GOP leaders spoke seriously of abolishing the Department of Education. They also threatened to make deep cuts <clears throat> in Goals 2000, a prominent Clinton program to give states grants. But now they provide precisely the amount of money he had requested. As Congress wraps up its work this year, Clinton is continuing to prevail, says the Washington Post. Republicans are on the defensive. They're still confused over how to be for education without supporting new programs from Washington said Checker Finn, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and Assistant Secretary of Education during the Bush administration. It goes on, on some education issues, Republican leaders and Clinton have reached consensus. Both want to develop new charter schools. Both sides also have agreed to spend more federal money to help children improve their reading skills and to help needy students pay for college. Another feud still exists on Clinton's plan to give national tests 
in reading and math, which would be an unprecedented step for schools. The compromise forged last week may preserve the tests. GOP lawmakers have deep differences on the subject. Last month, Senate Republicans strongly backed a modified form of Clinton's tests, even as the House voted to ban them. Unquote. Of course, it would not be necessary to worry about national testing if there were no federal money. Once the principle is conceded, the question is not whether defeat will be experienced, but rather when and to what extent. Conservatives, especially the Republican variety of conservatives, tend to assume that when a skirmish is lost, the supposed principle on which it was being waged need be surrendered forever. In other words, once the federal government puts its nose in the tent, it can never be pushed out. The liberals make no such strategic concessions. For them, every step backward is followed by an attempt to take at least two steps forward. On the other hand, the Republicans seem never willing to attempt recovery of lost ground, but are instead content to argue about how much of the remaining turf will be shared with the adversaries of those whom they purport to represent. They constantly argue that they cannot make big changes all at once, but that is precisely what the liberals do. For the liberals, the statists, the socialists, and the democratic fascists, all of whom favor more government control and less personal liberty, incrementalism is merely a tactical ploy which they use to achieve their objectives circuitously without having to change either destination or direction. The Republicans foolishly believe that resorting to incrementalism, even when they have the power to achieve a complete turnaround, offers some kind of victory, when really all that they are doing is temporarily slowing the growth of liberal programs without in any way challenging their permanence or legitimacy. Once having surrendered the principle, they lack the moral and political confidence to subsequently reassert it. There is no hill they seek to take, because fighting for that hill might place at risk their political lives, which they value far more highly than any political principle. The fact of the matter is that constitutionally there is no proper role whatsoever for the federal government in education, except with respect to the armed forces of the United States and occupied territories. Indeed, the First Amendment to the Constitution stipulates that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Inevitably and inescapably, every educational institution is an establishment of religion, however that word religion may be defined. In the 18th century, the authors of the Constitution understood religion to mean the duty which we owe our Creator. Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, 5th edition, characterizes religion as one of the systems of faith and worship. The compact edition of the Oxford English Dictionary carries this definition, devotion to some principle. Indeed, the Oxford Dictionary and Thesaurus, published <clears throat> in 1996, asserts simply that religion is a thing that one is devoted to. It further stipulates that to educate is to give intellectual, moral, and social instruction. Religion is, in fact, a system of ideas concerning the nature of God and man. One can argue that for some, the advocacy of homosexuality has become a system 
of faith and practice. The same can be said of environmentalism, which carried to extremes can take the form of earth worship. Feminism, Nazism, and communism are all ideologies or systems of faith and belief. Professor Robert H. Nelson wrote in the July 17 Forbes magazine that, quote, the problem is that many public schools have been teaching religion for years without calling it that. In their recent book, Facts Not Fear, Michael Sonera and Jane Shaw studied 100 children's books on the environment being used in schools. What did they discover? That many of the books advocate a kind of salvation through environmental activism. Is this religion? Of course it is. Roger Kennedy, until recently the director of the National Park Service, has said, wilderness is, our religious, is a religious subject that should be part of our religious life. John Muir, the founder of the Sierra Club, believed that in the wilderness, people find terrestrial manifestations of God. The environmental gospel teaches that excessive consumption is bad for the soul, that a new reverence for the earth is required, and that people of the world must repent their wasteful ways. Recycling has become an environmental religious ritual analogous to keeping kosher kitchens or eating fish on Friday. Whether values are taught in the name of old or new religions, they are still religious values, not facts. He goes on to say, the Christian right and other religious groups complain that under current court rulings, like the recent Ohio one, they are being discriminated against. Indeed, they are. Why should separation of church and state apply to historic Jewish and Christian teachings, but not to education in newer and more modern Gospels? When Jefferson wrote in the Virginia Declaration of Religious Liberty that to compel a man to furnish funds <clears throat> for the propagation of ideas he disbelieves and abhors is sinful and tyrannical, he was asserting the principle of liberty of conscience, which is implicit in and fundamental to the plain text of the First Amendment to the Constitution. All education is essentially, inescapably, and inevitably religious, in that it must carry with it presuppositions about the nature of God and man. Those presuppositions in the early days of the American Republic were explicitly Christian. Now they are increasingly humanistic and antinomian. That is why we must be thankful for the straightforward language of the First Amendment to the Constitution, which forbids Congress making any law whether to raise revenues or expend them in support of a religious establishment, even as it prevents Congress from interfering with the free exercise of religion. Personally, I reject the doctrine of incorporation, which wrongly asserts that the First Amendment applies to state governments as well as to the Congress. But if I were to join those liberals who argue thus, my case would be even stronger, deducing as it would that the federal constitution prohibits any expenditure of public funds in support of educational establishments, since they are, in fact, religious establishments, institutions which indoctrinate in the context of their preferred presuppositions. The notion of religious neutrality is a myth. There is no middle ground on the question of biblical reality. Either God's word is true or it is not. 
All subsequent conclusions must be based on one or the other of these propositions or presuppositions. Either man is a created being endowed by his creator with certain inalienable rights, or man is an historical accident, an evolutionary entity who exists by random selection, without moral order, discernible origin, or ultimate purpose. When biblical presuppositions are rejected, the door is opened for at first the official toleration of, and very soon thereafter, the advocacy of all that which God condemns, from sexual promiscuity to abortion to homosexuality, and of course, in all cases, the eventual rejection of all legitimate, ultimate, God-ordained authority. Because law is the will of the sovereign, so long as the United States has a political system which recognizes that God's creatures owe a duty of stewardship to their creator and that we have a right and duty to hold accountable those to whom we delegate political authority so that we may conscientiously exercise our stewardship, then concepts of national independence are viable and understandable. But when the chain of accountability of civil government to the citizen is broken and constitutional limitations, such as those proscribing congressional action, with respect to any establishment of religion are ignored, then the biblical common law system, which defines our liberties, is easily rejected in favor of the globalist nostrums of world citizenship, which are now increasingly part of government-funded educational curricula. The real issue is not whether education shall be religious, but rather on which religious premises our system of education shall be based. Because I favor civil liberty and have wanted my own children to be educated in the context of a Christian worldview, I must reject any law which propagates faiths alien to my own and which obliges me through compulsory taxation to subsidize the propagation of those other hostile faiths, even as such law places bounds on the advocacy and exposition of that which I and my family believe. After all, children are not the property of the state, and God does assign... <clears throat> and God does assign parents primary and ultimate responsibility for the nurture and admonition of their progeny. If anyone needs evidence that questions of religion are inescapably intertwined with issues of education, he needn't look no further than the current controversies in the state of Alabama, where a megalomaniacal federal judge, Ira Dement, referred to by the people of Alabama as Judge Demented, ignores both the First Amendment and the Tenth Amendment to the federal constitution as he seeks to impose his own will to deny the teachers, administrators, parents, and students of the state of Alabama their constitutional right, their God-given right to the exercise, the free exercise of their religious faith. The possibility the judge demand may succeed simply underscores the necessity of obliging any citizen to subsidize with his taxes official hostility 
to that which such citizens understand to be true education and true religion. Uh, it underscores the necessity of not obliging any citizen to subsidize. But despite the failure of Republicans at the White House and on Capitol Hill to make good their promises, there is hope. For the Constitution makes clear that no funds may be dispersed from the federal treasury except by a presidentially signed congressional appropriation or an overridden presidential veto of such an appropriation. No president can veto a zero. So whenever Congress has the discernment and the courage to end the federal role in education, it can do so by appropriating zero funds for such purposes. Failing that, we must await the election of a president morally and openly committed to veto any and all appropriation measures which reach his desk, including even a single cent for the unconstitutional provision of federal dollars to establishments of religion at any and all levels. Whether such appropriations include funding for the Elementary and Secondary Education Act or subsidies direct and indirect to colleges and universities, which have all too often become institutions of anti-Christian indoctrination. By saying yes to liberty of conscience, we must say no to federally subsidized and regulated establishments of religion. Thank you. I'm so excited about getting to say something that I forgot I was supposed to be applauding him. That was wonderful, Howard. And I especially like that uh, beautiful piece on the 14th and the petard, you know. Well, if this thing, uh, if the 14th applies, then let's just go back and apply that to all of the states. That is a charming little insight. In fact, it's a charming big insight. We're going to have three responders, and our responders are invited to embellish, uh, should they wish, or uh, contradict, uh, if they wish. Uh, and challenge our uh, speaker. Each, each responder has five minutes. Uh, they've been chosen because they have different uh, theological perspectives from each other and because they share, though, a, uh, um, a, a, a great deal of insights, uh, sometimes differently, but a great deal of insights that I think that will add to our program. So first is going to be my friend George Lawrence from uh, Cordova, Tennessee. Thank you, Marshall. There we go. Well, good morning. I'm not about at all to disagree with what Howard Phillips has just said to you all. Of course, of course, all education is inherently religious. But when talking to many people, I find that they think it's also so esoteric that it's not going to impact in the classroom in a significant way. Now, I'm here to tell you this, this morning that on Monday morning in classrooms all around the United States, kindergarten will start with a lesson in cosmology. The kindergartners will all gather together around the bulletin board. The kindergarten teacher is going to say, students, what day is today? And they'll say, Monday. And the teacher will say, yes, it is Monday. And then the teacher will say, and what's the weather like today? And some little child will say, it's sunny. And the teacher will say, yes, it's sunny. What is it? It's is either a universe created by God, a universe superintended by Him, in which case we ought to say, 
What's the weather today? God has sent us. He's given us a sunny day. Or it's a universe, a nihilistic universe of space, time, chance, plus nothing. A universe with no meaning. Kindergarten starts every day with a lesson in cosmology. Education is indeed inherently religious, and it's always inherently religious, no matter how simple the lesson may be. One plus one is taught either as a human construct, something we thought up, or it's the beginning of instruction in language of mathematics, a language that explains who God is and how his universe works. Later on, Macbeth is either taught as a study of why Macbeth caved in to the sin of ambition and Banquo did not, or else you're teaching a story which has no meaning. Of course, government should not be involved in this religious process. In the separation of school and state alliance, we've given a lot of attention to getting government out of our education. I'd like us to think a little bit, too, about the fact that while there is compulsory education, many of us are examples of the fact that we're not compelled yet to send our children to these government schools. Why have so few people left the government schools? Why are they so full yet? Perhaps because we've paid so little attention to some of the lessons learned by Christian schools and independent schools over the years. You know, every year at my school, Evangelical Christian School in Memphis, Tennessee, about 1,250 parents make a very difficult choice. They choose to withdraw their children from the government schools. They choose to pay approximately $5,000 a child to have them in my school, while they continue to pay, continue to pay unjust taxes to support the government establishment of religion in the government schools. I would say to you that listening to what private education and Christian education has learned over the years is a valuable thing for us to do. Why is it that so few people leave the government schools? I suggest perhaps it's because they don't know what's going on. That one of our prime tasks needs to be to educate the parents of America. Each year, in my school, about 1,200 people must gain the critical mass of knowledge, wisdom, and courage necessary to overcome the government-fostered ennui and inertia that keeps them chained into state schools. Of course, of course, all education is religious. But Christian and independent schools have learned how to communicate that message in the marketplace while we work to get government out of education. Let's not forget the lessons learned by people who have been working effectively in the trenches for hundreds of years to provide a godly Christian alternative. Thank you, George Lawrence. Thank you, thank you. And now to further the responses, my friend, the, the president, founder of the Minaret of Freedom, uh, Ibn Ad-Din Ahmed. Uh, Dean, uh, salamu alaikum. <laughs> Good. Inshallah. Go get it. And peace be upon you. 
in the name of God the most gracious, the most merciful. I think Howard's uh, address has uh, addressed three particular issues. Uh, the issue of the main subject, the issue that values are ultimately religious values, uh, the uh, issue that the conservatives have helped to cause the problem that we are confronting today, uh, and a third point that was perhaps implicit rather than explicit, and that is that the dispute we're discussing is really one about power. Um, let me briefly address the first issue, because I think Howard has addressed it very well, that all values are religious in nature. Uh, and that also leads me to summarize the view in these words, to absent values from teaching is to teach the absence of values. And I think this is ultimately the problem that we're confronting with the concept, the impossible concept of secular education. Let me turn to his second uh, idea that uh, uh, the, the role conservatives have played in the problem. And here I think he has understated it. I think there is more. The conservatives, and not just the liberals, have undermined the First Amendment. And I think you can see this even in Howard's speech, because he has only criticized federal government involvement in education. Uh, he only brought up, I think as a rhetorical device, the idea that the 14th Amendment makes the First Amendment apply to the states. Well, I, I believe that the 14th Amendment does make the First Amendment apply to the states, and therefore I think that his half-serious uh, conclusion is a dead-serious conclusion, and that we must be concerned about getting government at all levels out of education. In fact, I believe that this is the main point. Uh, the reason uh, is that we are talking about ultimately of issues of power. The state involvement in education, including its embroilment in question of religious values, is a power issue. If we look at the rise of government education in the 19th century, we see that religious conservatives played an unfortunate role in it. Uh, the uh, poor people at that time were often being educated in Catholic and high Lutheran schools. And pietist Protestant Americans didn't like that. They wanted poor people to get a good, decent education. Since the Protestants were the majority, they naturally presumed that if there were government schools, that they could get a Protestant education. Uh, well, we found out it doesn't work that way, does it? Uh, and therefore, they are, by demanding or condoning, uh, state education, whether on a state level or even local governments to educate, they are inviting uh, the kinds of problems that we uh, are confronting. The liberals of the 19th century who supported the Protestant move for government schools knew what they were doing. And I think they knew that ultimately we would have the situation we have today and it was something that they wanted to bring about. For them, the role of uh, the uh, schools is, uh, and they will say this explicitly, somebody quoted the other day at one of the uh, brainstorming sessions we had here, uh, someone saying that, you know, in the future all education will be done at home, but schools will still exist because they're necessary for socialization. <laughs> I think that's the situation today. All education, as opposed to schooling, is going on in the homes. The schools are strictly for socialization making us good citizens, by which, by good citizens, they don't mean what de Tocqueville meant by good citizens, they mean obedient servants of the state. Uh, if, if you do not believe that this is what happened in the 19th century, I would suggest that you look at what's happening today in Turkey. In Turkey, uh, the, uh, which is a rapidly secular country, 
in which they make no bones about the fact their concept of secularism is not just separation of church and state, but the removal of religion from public life. In Turkey right now, the military has, throw, has succeeded in pressuring out a popularly elected government that was trying not to put religion in state schools, but that had come to power because of the religious teachings in the private schools. And they have forced that government out and demanded that the new government institute compulsory education to a much higher grade level than previously required in order to shut out the private schools and prevent them from educated citizens who are independent-minded, independent of the government. Um, sometime you ought to have a panel on that subject. I think it will illustrate these points. Right now, I am uh, almost out of time, so I will quote with one last, uh, close with one last quote. Uh, Henry David Thoreau, famous for refusing to pay taxes uh, back in the 19th century, uh, before we had the government education system, and who was a teacher. In defending his refusal to pay taxes uh, that would support a particular church in his community, uh, said that he did not see why the school teacher should be taxed to pay the minister, but not the minister taxed to pay the school teacher. Well, times have changed. But the question, the point of the question still exists. Why should the minister be taxed to pay the school teacher and not the school teacher taxed to pay the minister? There is only one way out of this conundrum. It is to get the government completely out of all education. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, we should be, we should be offering up a prayer for these religious Turks because clearly they're struck with a disease, ITD, independent thought disorder. So, uh, Ron Brandt uh, is uh, a friend of mine. A man I uh, treasure for uh, his uh, integrity, and he has uh, attended both last year and helped us by uh, moderating, and this year, uh, the, uh, the, the formal debates. And he's a man who is highly respected in the mainstream education uh, community. Uh, he has some slightly differing views than some of the rest of us on the separation issue, and those may come through in the next few minutes. Uh, come on up here, Ron Brent. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Marshall. As, uh, as Marshall's token uh, representative of public education, I must say that uh, I did not look forward to this session, uh, nor as I, uh, as I listened, uh, I wondered what in the world I could say, because I have to confess that this uh, presentation by Howard Phillips is, is uh, relentlessly logical and, and formidable for any person to respond to. Nevertheless, I think I can do it. I, I heard two themes. <laughs> <laughs> in the presentation. In the beginning, uh, uh, Mr. Phillips referred to some political circumstances uh, that uh, characterize our, our country. I uh, personally believe that these terms uh, that he referred to of conservative and radical and, and liberal are almost meaningless to us at this point. I know at this point of no uh, major political leader who could be characterized as what I would describe as liberal. I know that many people here have referred to our president as a liberal. I find it very difficult to put him in that category. What category to put him in, I'm afraid I can't answer. Uh, but I would say that within the field of, of education, over the last several years, many of the initiatives that have taken place, such as were mentioned, Goals 2000, 
outcome-based education, school to work, and certainly the proposed national tests are not supported by the people I regard as educational liberals. These things are opposed by the educational liberals with whom I'm acquainted just as much as they are by the people in this room. I could go into the national test, into OBE or anything else, and tell you why. Educational philosophers within our profession, who are not heard from very often, actually oppose these things too. Most certainly, national testing. I could tell you why I also oppose those national tests, but that's really not the subject at this point. The subject is the matter that education is inherently religious and therefore uh, cannot be supported by government. Now from, as I said, from a logical standpoint, you can't quarrel with that. What you can quarrel with is whether or not the American people buy that idea. How shall we decide what to do about the fact that some believe this to be true, and yet, uh, as George Lawrence said, so few people act on that and withdraw their children from public schools? The only explanation I have is that they don't believe it. Now, how can we deal with this in this society? Well, if we lived in Iraq, the leader of the nation would decide, and we'd all abide by that. But what we are is a democracy. And so we have to try to make these decisions democratically. There was a reference in Mr. Phillips' uh, presentation to this Alabama judge who is not following the will of the people. Well, what he is following is his sense of what the Constitution requires. We saw similar situations in Alabama 40 or 50 years ago where individuals pronounced that there should not be racial segregation, and yet uh, most people wanted it. And so what we have is a situation in which we have to think through what will we do when there are a few people who believe deeply something and the majority believe something else. That uh, leads us to the courageous lady, Norma Gabler, who introduced this session because what we've seen is a person with deep convictions who has had tremendous influence on American education. I'd like to study how she did that because she's a very powerful person in this profession. Now there sometimes comes a time when the majority says this is what we believe and a small minority simply will not accept that. We've seen examples of that as well. We have to respect that small minority's point of view. We have to take it seriously, but in a democracy, we say the majority will continue to decide what to do. So let's see what happens. I don't believe that we will, in fact, decide that government should not support education. It remains to be seen. Thank you, Ron. Thank you, Ron. I like Ron pointing out the power of one and the power that Norma Gabler and her husband Mel have had on textbooks. And I'm also concerned uh, with Ron's question of why so few people understand that religion is inherently uh, religious. And I would suggest that, Ron, the reason is, is that not a sufficient number of people yet uh, leaders in particular, opinion leaders, have signed the proclamation for the separation of school and state. So later today, I'll, uh, I'll slip you a copy of that, 
and, uh, and let you join Norma in this immense power of one uh, by, uh, by saying so, the, 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 the relentless logic it may just uh, appeal to you, I don't know. Anyway, enough of all of uh, my chitter-chatter. Let's uh, ask uh, uh, Howard if he would like to respond to his responders and uh, limit him. We wanted you to finish by Tuesday, okay? Thank you, sir. And today is what? <laughs> Tuesday. Okay. Let me just offer a, a few comments, particularly with reference to the thoughtful remarks of Ron Brand. Uh, I would make a point that is often lost on uh, quote-unquote conservatives in the political realm. Uh, I recall during the Reagan administration that one of the arguments for not closing down the Department of Education was that, gee, we, we don't control both houses of Congress. Under our magnificent constitutional system, there's the principle of the blocking third. In order to achieve results, you don't need to pass legislation. You need to stop spending. And very simply, if a bill reaches a president's desk that includes funds for education or any other unconstitutional purpose, and if the president has the moral resolve and the ability to rally uh, a third plus one, thereabouts of the American people, uh, he can probably translate that into a sustained veto in one of the two houses of Congress. One president plus either 30, <coughs> excuse me, 34 U.S. senators or 145 of, a, of 435 representatives in Congress can close down the federal role in education if they are uh, determined to do so. Let me say with respect to Alabama that uh, having, uh, together with Herb Titus, spent a day down there a week or two ago with Judge Roy Moore in Gadsden in Ottawa County, I am uh, increasingly convinced that the moral imperialists are not those parents and students and teachers who wish to be able to continue to acknowledge God as they historically have, but rather a federal judge who instead of uh, honoring the plain text of the Constitution uh, suggests that somehow the Supreme Court has the right to amend the Constitution during its coffee break or legislate during its lunch hour and, uh, and override its plain text the uh, federal government has no right to interfere with what states and localities do in the area of education. Now, the real answer is uh, if people feel oppressed by Christian witness in the local schools of Alabama, to change the system so that no one has to uh, subsidize via taxation the government schools. And in that way, people will be able to choose that system of education uh, which they find uh, most appropriate. The, uh, the moral imperialists are not those people who seek to be faithful to their beliefs, but those who seek to restrict them in their practice. And uh, there is nothing, absolutely nothing in the Constitution which gives Judge Ira DeMent the authority to uh, place monitors in the government schools of that area uh, to see to it that the uh, administrators, teachers, and students are conforming to his notion of what is sound public policy. 
he's just another in uh, the latest of many examples of uh, arrogant federal judges. In order to summarize and conclude uh, my remarks, I'd simply like to share with you the text of the platform of the United States Taxpayers Party with respect to education, because I think it uh, constitutes a prescription for sound public policy in this area. This was adopted at our convention in San Diego uh, last summer, the summer of, excuse me, the summer of 1996. And the party stands for this, quote, all teaching is related to basic assumptions about God and man. Education as a whole, therefore, cannot be separated from religious faith. The law of the Creator, as stated in the Declaration of Independence, assigns the power and duty of educating children to their parents. <clears throat> Education should be free from all federal government subsidies, including vouchers, tax incentives, and loans. Because the federal government has absolutely no jurisdiction concerning the education of our children, the United States Department of Education should be abolished. Because control of education is now being relegated to departments other than the Department of Education, we further state that no federal agency, department, board, or other entity may exercise jurisdiction over any aspect of children's upbringing. Education, training, and discipline of children is properly placed in the domain of the parents. All federal legislation related to education should be repealed, including but not limited to Goals 2000, all outcome-based education programs, school-to-work programs, the Success by Six programs, and other similar programs, and no federal laws subsidizing or regulating the education of our children should be enacted. Under no circumstances should the federal government <clears throat> be involved in educational curriculum, textbook selection, or learning standards, including comprehensive sex education and psychological and psychiatric research testing programs and personnel. I think that's a, a plan we can live by. Thanks very much. Okay, we're going to have a question and answer. We're going to have a question and answer period now, and we are going to use the um, uh, style that we became accustomed to yesterday, uh, which is, Wally, will you hold up your hand? Uh, for people who have already asked a question, will they please line up behind Wally's hand? And those who are asking their first question, please join the line over here. So those who would like to have seconds will stand behind Wally until those who have firsts have, haven't had firsts have been served. Uh, next, your, your questions and micro-speeches will be restrained to one minute. Uh, Ms. Timer, do you have the one-minute warning? And do you have a little stop sign that they'll be able to see? Good. And if you would, please announce your name and the uh, city that you come from. Thank you. Go ahead, sir. I'm Neil Markva, and I'm from uh, Springfield, Virginia, live in Fairfax County. This past year, I served as a member of the task force that rewrote government and history curriculum for the Fairfax County Public Schools. And one of the primary things that I found uh, to exist was a lack of knowing the difference between a democracy and a republic. And <laughs> and Mr. Brandt, this morning, I, I uh, think you gave us a, a clear indication of why 
we have to get this issue cleared up. You made the statement that we are a democracy. That is not the case. We are not a democracy. We are a republic. Therefore, the majority rule of the people is not that which governs this nation. It is the rule of law. And therefore, the rule of law does not, does not give government the right to exchange or, or establish or teach opinion in place of fact or law. And the fact that we have heard this morning that law precludes the teaching of religion. Thank you, Mr. Markva. Well said. Uh, and that is directed, I take it, at Ron Brett. Would you care to uh, make a response, Ron? Just very briefly, of course, there is a formal distinction between these two, two definitions, and I accept that. We usually use the word democratic in a broad sense to say trying to use uh, follow the will of the, of the people, and that uh, in a very large establishment like ours is extremely difficult. Uh, thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, hmm. I would like to... Your name uh, and uh, location? Uh, Pastor Mike Britton from uh, Towson Bible Church in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, I'd just like to continue with the previous thought. If you were to say the Pledge of Allegiance to the uh, flag, I pledge allegiance to the flag and to the... And so there you have the difference. It, it is a republic, not a democracy. And you yourself gave the example that it's not mere semantics. But if there is a minority that is overruled by the majority, the reason the Founding Fathers gave us a republic and not a democracy was the, for the protection of that minority, so the very things that happened couldn't happen. So it's far more than semantics, and it's not just a little term, because they themselves said that had they set up a democracy, it would lead to anarchy, and from anarchy always comes totalitarianism. Uh, thank you, and uh, it was phrased enough as a question. Go ahead. And within our system, there are provisions for protection of the rights of the minorities, uh, but they're not complete. That's right. Thank you. Gary, your name and... Yes, Gary Alexander from Reston, Virginia. I was a candidate uh, for the Virginia State House of Delegates this year. And let me interrupt you. I'm not on his time. He is also the 1,000th signer of the proclamation for the separation of school and That's state. Right. Will you please... Uh, <laughs> And uh, 1,000 is my magic number. I got almost 1,000 votes, 5%. Uh, and uh, the Democratic 10-time incumbent, Ken Plum, one who is a lifelong educator. Now, on a TV debate, I took the purest line on separation of school and state. Some other libertarians go for vouchers and tax credits, but I did not. And I asked them where the Constitution authorized any Department of Education. I'm going to ask uh, Howard Phillips this question as a candidate. Um, they came up with West Point, which is not in the Constitution. They came up with a pursuit of happiness, which is not in the Constitution. They, they came up with Jefferson saying everybody should have an education, which is not in the Constitution. But they finally came up with this Commerce Clause, saying a Commerce Clause covers everything. Uh, I, I asked them a question in return. If Commerce covers education, is there something it does not cover? And they had no answer to that particular question. So my question to my fellow candidate, Howard Phillips, is what is the statist's best constitutional argument for public education, and what is our best rejoinder to that? I would, uh, it's very hard for me to think the way they do. <laughs> but, um, but I guess it goes back to Darwin. They, they argue that law is evolutionary and that uh, things today aren't the same as they were before, and it really doesn't matter 
uh, what's in the original contract, uh, it's, uh, it's what we think. It's, it's as if you were to say, I have a 1985 Chevrolet and the owner's manual prescribes certain practices to make it run properly, but this is 1997, I'm going to disregard the owner's manual because I've evolved. But uh, the owner will soon discover that his Chevrolet has not evolved. And uh, I would argue that uh, the, the principles uh, that uh, were in play in 1776 and 1787 are very much in play today. And uh, they're immutable. And that's why uh, the wisdom of the framers of America's founding documents is so extraordinary, uh, so awe-inspiring. You know, it's certainly not on the order of Holy Scripture, but it's a pretty good political document. And they guaranteed in Article 4 of the Constitution to each state a republican form of government. And under that system, no federal judge has the right to arbitrarily uh, superimpose his prejudices on the uh, polity over which he claims suzerainty without any legitimacy. Um, we're really running tight on time. How much do we have uh, total, Mr. Timer? We have two minutes left. We're going to restrict it to one question. The next questioner, I'm sorry for everyone behind uh, her. They will allow questions, of course, uh, uh, during the break, uh, but we need to limit ourselves to one question and then a few uh, short to closing remarks by uh, Howard Phillips. So I'm sorry to um, Ms. Lapp, but go ahead. Well, I, I'll yield my closing remarks to the questioner. All right. Uh, Ms. Lapp, come back up quickly, and, uh, and let's uh, go uh, Sandy. My name is Sandy Beckers from Santa Barbara, California. My question is to Ron Brandt. Uh, you mentioned that educators that you know, and I'm assuming these are notable people that are in the education field, are opposed to school-to-work outcome-based education and uh, national testing and standards. And I'm wondering why they aren't speaking out. Why are we not hearing this? We only hear one side of the story. I think uh, the answer briefly is that there aren't very many public forums for people like Ted Sizer, uh, the leader of the uh, Coalition of Essential Schools and so on, to state his case. We had a, a, a forum in uh, the Washington area last uh, spring at which uh, Ted Sizer spoke out very strongly, for example, against the whole notion of standards, national standards, state standards, and so on. It didn't get any press whatsoever. It's very difficult for these people to, uh, to get the opportunity to express their points of view. Obviously, not all educators oppose school to work. Not, not at all. Many of them advocate it. I'm just saying that that is not a necessarily a liberal position, okay? A liberal has a hard time getting uh, press coverage even if he has $500 million to disperse. Isn't it a shame what the <laughs> press is doing to shutting down the liberals? Okay, uh, please, uh, Ms. Lapp. I'm Rachel Lapp. Casadega, New York. I guess whether or not we agree with the meaning of liberal or conservative, we still would have to, all of us would agree that we're individual human beings that have been given a purpose to fulfill on earth. And that's the comment I want to uh, give for Howard Phillips. I agree with a lot of what you said because I am a product of homeschooling also. Um, just want to comment on the last, one of the last things you said was that we have to await the election of a president who will withhold the funds from public education. I would disagree with that. I think that we can experience separation from the state, not only in education, but in, in many other areas of our lives by exercising our rights as individuals. And I'm going to do that now. No, I'm not going to wait for the next president. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I regret not to have spoken with sufficient clarity because I, uh, I certainly uh, encourage each of us to act now. There's no need for us to wait on the election uh, of a president or on the uh, acquisition of a conscience or a brain uh, or, uh, or constitutional discernment on the part of some of our legislators on Capitol Hill. They could act today. The problem could be solved today, but they choose not to act. And there is much that we as individuals can do. That's one of the reasons why my wife and I are homeschooling our 11-year-old, uh, our because we do not want him to be subject uh, to the indoctrination of those who reject our fundamental presuppositions uh, and our worldview. There are things we can do to oppose bond issues for education at the local uh, level and to argue more forcefully against them and to uh, uh, point out some of the absurdities of government education. The other day in Dover, Delaware, there was a case where little children in the second grade, or perhaps it was the fifth, but in grammar school was it the second grade, are being put through simulated same-sex marriages as a, as a form of cultural conditioning. Uh, anyone who argues that education can be separated uh, from religious presuppositions is wrong. Uh, our government schools are indoctrination academies, which seek to indoctrinate. You got it. Thank you. Which seek to indoctrinate America's young people against the very truths which permitted uh, America to become the greatest nation in the history of the world. Well, as a somewhat immoderate moderator, I want to be immoderate in my appreciation of uh, all of our panel responders and uh, Howard, but Ron Brandt, thank you, Dean Ahmed, thank you, George Lawrence, thank you, and thank you. Howard Phillips, thank you very much. Uh, the, uh, we'll just now end this session. One final round of applause, and then please stay in your seats for the, uh, uh, some mechanical announcements in terms of... Uh, 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 in terms of uh, me mechanical announcements. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so thank you. <laughs>